like the old Home Alone, like gray things that you could speak into that had like a cassette. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, my parents had one of those. I don't remember what they were called, but I remember thinking that when I was younger, that was the absolute coolest. Hmm. You'd around with this thing on your hand that you could speak into and record stuff and play back and, like, alter <laughs> the, um, alter the, I think you could alter the sound on that, although that may have hmm. been Yakbacks. <laughs> oh, Yakbacks. I completely forgot Yakbacks. <laughs> Hello friends, and welcome to episode 17, I believe, of So Poetry. Um, I, this is, I know this is a quick turnaround from the last episode, but um, I'm trying to make up for being uh, unexpectedly off for two months. Um, and also trying to get episode, enough episodes in to have season three start in October. Anyway, um, I am here with a dear new friend, J.P. Allen. Um, one of the... So, for those of you who, who don't live in Baltimore, there's kind of an on, a long-standing joke about it being small to more. That, like, whenever you go out or whoever you meet, you will have, like, at least a person connected in your in your social social circles um and jp and i met at the vermont studio center and as we were i think it was when we were going around the first night and saying everyone was saying like where they were from and what they were up to um when you said you were from baltimore i was like hmm i don't know him which is weird because i thought that i knew most of the people in the literary community um, and then I just realized that he's a, he was a Hopkins MFA, and most of the people that I know are UB MFA, and it seems like there's not a whole lot of overlap. Although, you do knew you did do know a handful of people that I know, so I guess it's still it still worked. I don't know, like if us like two two Baltimore people being in Vermont is small. I don't know. I don't know hmm. how the how far that extends. Yeah. Well, it's still only. Does that count as one degree of separation or two? I'm I don't never know. sure if it's the spaces between people or the people. I don't know. I, I never anyway. could figure that out. But it's still pretty a pretty close uh, association. Yeah. yeah. And I guess I've only been here for two years, so. Oh. Um, yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I've only lived in Baltimore for two years. Um, but, <laughs> but you are are you still you you're done your MFA though? Yeah, right? I finished. So the yeah the Hopkins MFA is two years. Oh, okay. Um, All right. And then I'm like staying for a third year to teach. Um, but yeah, so I haven't been here that long. Yeah. Are you planning on, I mean, I know this is potential, like, big future plan stuff, but do you think <laughs> you're going to stick around in Baltimore longer, or you look casting your your scopes around? I don't really know yet. Um, yeah, because, so this teaching job lasts a year, mm -hmm. and may or may not continue beyond that. I think it would be nice to stay in Baltimore, but I'm not necessarily... It, yeah, it's not my priority to stay here. Like, mm -hmm. if I if some opportunity came up somewhere else, I would probably go somewhere else. Right. Um, so, yeah, I'm just... I don't know. That's, that's, something, <laughs> that's something that I'm kind of intentionally not thinking about for at least the next couple of months. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like it here, and I really like the community here, which I'm just starting to, like, know more about and, like, have more friends in. Um, yeah. 
I feel like I feel like Baltimore is a sneaky city <laughs> in the respect of I I feel like most people come to Baltimore not expect or expecting to be around for a couple of years. Like they'll be here for school or they'll be here for some reason. You're like, yeah, I don't know, maybe stick around a year afterwards and then we'll see. And then <laughs> like more often than not, they tend to just stay in Baltimore. Hmm. Um, and I don't I don't know. I don't know if that's a if that's a good thing, a good trait that Baltimore has, or it's a it's a neutral trait, or it's just if it's like if it's just a trait and depending upon <laughs> the circumstances that uh, that keep you in Baltimore, I guess it would be good or bad. Yeah, I guess it depends on the person's attitude towards like staying. staying here. <laughs> yeah. I mean I think it's mostly good. I think it's very powerful and exciting when a place like has a hold on on people. Yeah. Um, and it can do that for a lot of different reasons. Some of them very good and some of them very bad and some of them everywhere in between. Yeah. Um, but I think there is something like encouraging when, when you hear stories like that yeah. of people either falling in love with pl- a place or like finding it to be home sort of without realizing it. Yeah. Um, and I, I think at least for me personally, and I, I feel like this, it would be similar, a similar case with a lot of my friends, although I have not asked them about this directly. Um, the main, one of the main reasons that I'm staying here is that I've built up my like chosen family or my, Mm. my, um, I guess support group of friends. And it, it's, I feel like really easy to do that in Baltimore because there's so many communities and at least the ones that I'm at least adjacently a part of are very welcoming and very, you know, it's like, there's, there's not a whole lot of. Like, if, if you want to get into the literary community or the arts community or the LGBT community, there's not a whole lot of resistance, for, like, inherent in those communities. It's very mm-hmm. easy for you to kind of be, to get in and be kind of inundated and just, you know, like, you suddenly lay down roots in that stuff. Um, or even, like, the aerial arts community, which is, hmm. like, small, but it's one of those things. It's, like, there's... Like, you meet people there, and then you realize that they're connected to these other things, and you're connected to these other things, and then, it, like, the Smaltimore just becomes more, <laughs> in, infinitely, or exponentially more and more entangled. It's like quantum entanglement, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Um, wh- wait, are you, do you do aerial I do. stuff? Mm-hmm. At Mobtown, which is another one of those random connections. It's like all the, all the dancers that I know. Hmm. Um, yeah, I've been doing it, uh, I think November will be four years whoa yeah that's crazy uh so do is that have you ever fallen and hurt yourself um i have fallen and i have hurt myself but i've never (laughs) hurt myself because i have fallen oh okay okay i've like i've slipped out of some stuff where i'm not i haven't been super high um but most of the most of the injuries that i get are usually because of rope burn Mm mm-hmm um, like there was, there was one thing I was doing and I'd like, there's a technique called, or there's a move called scary dragon where you're kind of <laughs> like, you're wrapped up with your, um, like the fabrics all kind of around your, your legs and you're in kind of a diaper thing and you <laughs> grab the tails above you and then you let go and you have to, or the, the poles above you and you have to grab the tails and open up. Hmm. So it's like you let go, you grab and you roll through and then you open up and I missed one of the tails. Mm-hmm. So when I... When I rolled through and opened up, I sort of just slid down the fabrics and I had a huge just like um, rope burn that left a scar on my left, like my left. I don't know if you can still. No, I can't see anything. I think you've fully healed. 
Well, it was short, a short standing scar, but yeah, so that, that hurt. I did, there is, one of my friends fell out of something and broke her clavicle. Um, or no, her collarbone. Hmm. Clavicle's sh- shoulder, right? Whatever. I don't know. Collarbone, I don't know what the, the scientific term for that is, but she broke her collarbone. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, she she was only like three and a half feet off the ground, but she landed in just like the... the the right way for it to just snap. Ugh. Oh, um, man. But she's back doing aerial, and she's been back, I think, like a year and a half since hmm. the injury, so. Um, That's there... really cool, though. That's like a... I didn't even know there was like a an aerial arts... Mm-hmm community but that's kind of great that's in awesome. in in baltimore proper it's centered mostly in around mob town but they're like vertical mm. bodies does some stuff um although it's mostly like sling and lyra not so much the silks because you need mm-hmm. you need a whole lot of height for that um i think there's some stuff down in dc too mm. there's a the founder of the mob town aerial stuff has a, a partner like a long-standing partner that she's done stuff with that's down in dc that teaches mm. as well mm-hmm. um but if you're interested, and <laughs> I'll throw this out there because this this episode will be going up some at some point this weekend. Um, so today is the 26th of August. Uh, the next round of aerial sessions will be starting in three weeks. Um, so if you go to MobTown.com or just Google MobTown Ballroom and look for the aerial classes, you'll be able to find stuff. So if you're interested in, in that, hmm. if you're looking for something interesting to do... <laughs> Um, new in the fall. Um, Untethered from the ground. Up in the air. Sounds very exciting. I'm imagining like really, uh, like sequin covered leotards. Yes. And, uh, like calliopes and (laughs) things like that. And I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm sure that's not what it's like, but. Sequin leotards, yes. Less calliopes and more, uh. Inya type stuff. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, I can see, I can, I can picture that. Too. Or like, um, <coughs> oh fuck, um, Beats Antique. I guess would be a good. A lot I of people know. use. I don't know who that is. Um, a friend of mine did a did a routine to Kesha. Oh, that sounds cool. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, so. Would you like to introduce yourself? Oh since yeah, we sure. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to like follow the follow the questions or yes. Okay, so uh, my name is JP Allen. I am 28. I grew up in a small town in Kentucky called Danville, center of the state, uh, and I went to college in Vermont, and then I lived in New York City for a few years, and then I came to Baltimore two years ago for the master's program in poetry at Johns Hopkins. And yeah, I've been here ever since. And I am I write pr- pretty much exclusively poetry, although lately I've tried to kind of branch out into other nonfiction-y things and like maybe some a little bit of fiction, but we'll see. I'm kind of seeing where that goes. And you were working on some stuff that wasn't poetry at the Studio Center. Yeah, right? that was kind of when I started. That was when I first started trying to maybe write a short story, which I still have only bits and pieces of. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I haven't had a ton of time. I haven't given myself a ton of time to write right. since the end of the Vermont Studio Center, so I still feel like that was my main writing time of the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I do that, and then I also host a uh, mm. co-host a reading series called Hey You Come Back, 
which I'm just going to promote right now because this is my chance. I'll, actually, uh, I'll be putting that up in the description. Cool. So it's the first Thursday of every month, and it uh, features a combination of there's like one writer who's associated with Johns Hopkins in some way, and then two to three other writers who are uh, very pointedly not a, not like Johns Hopkins affiliated. So the goal is to just kind of like bring communities together um, and bridge the many gaps which exist in Baltimore, not only within the literary community, but just kind of in general. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the next one is going to be on September 7th, which I th- think this episode, if this episode is going up this weekend, yes. then it'll be before then. So yes. yeah, it's going to be really good. And then Lauren, so there's a somebody that we, another person that we met at Vermont Studio Center <clears throat> that's reading in September, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And then so I will be, I personally will be reading in October. Which mm-hmm. I'm excited about. So, if there's anybody in Baltimore, um, or around Baltimore, on it was October sixth. I think it's 9th? October fifth. Fifth. It's the first Thursday in October. I know September is the seventh, uh, and I think October is the fifth, but I'm not sure. Um, but if anybody who happens to listen to uh, so poetry uh, is around Baltimore um, and would like to see what I've been working on, what I've been working on, and the reason why there was a big hiatus in the middle of the (laughs) summer, um, come out. I'm going to be reading stuff that I've all, some poems that I wrote in Vermont. Um, Should be fun. Oh, and you, for Hey You Come Back, you don't get, like, you don't ask readers to come to reread, correct? Yeah, we have a policy of, of, so far we have never had anybody read twice. That's very Um, impressive. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really important thing because, and it's it seems like kind of a silly rule, and sometimes I feel sort of bad because like somebody asked about the possibility of reading again because they had a book coming out, and I was like, no, it's our policy to never have people read twice, and I felt kind of I felt kind of like pedantic, and but I think it's really good. I think it's a really good rule to have because it forces us to always look for new people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, it was funny, though, that when that happened, and I was like, nope, sorry, <laughs> I've, I promise I'm really honored that you want to come back and read again, but we want to try to have different people at but the I time. feel like there's, I mean, I, yeah, I imagine that would be a nice, it's a nice thing when someone says that I, you know, I had a lot of fun reading yeah. and I want to do it again, but <laughs> if, if you are connected to the Baltimore literary scene, uh, there is no shortages oh, of yeah. readings, or mm-hmm. just, um, like things to do involving that, mm-hmm. um, which is one. I guess one of the one of the really nice things about Baltimore is that um, it feels like there's enough there's enough space, and it's like all of them are different. Like uh, mm-hmm. Writers and Words is a very unique feeling. Um, hey, you come back. There's oh crap. There's Tender one. FM. Yes, uh, there's which one, is another reading series. There's one at the um, fuck at Artifact. On Tuesdays, I think, or on a, oh, a Tuesday, yeah. it's done by oh, I think it's called Starts Here. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I'm actually gonna write all these down and hmm. put them in the description. Tinder FM. Mm-hmm. And then like, there's like a million things going on at Red Emma's all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, which is great. And then yeah. like the Crown hosts a bunch of stuff too. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, it's really, like, it's really exciting, and I think that's one of the, I kind of, in, I imagined that this might be the case when I decided I was going to come to Hopkins, um, and it, 
And I think it has really been true that I, I don't know, I have the chance to hear from like a lot of different voices that uh, there just wouldn't be as many people and as many like people with different interests in a small college town. Mm-hmm. Um, not that there's anything wrong with like doing a, a master's in a, in a small college town, but I feel like being here has been a really important part and a really positive part of like my MFA poetry experience. Um, yeah. So were you, when you were in New York, were you connected to the literary scene at all? Were you focused, were you doing other, other yeah, well I wasn't, I, because you weren't in New York for literary stuff. No, no. Well, I went to college and studied political science and I had like kind of always been interested in writing and poetry kind of since I was in high school, but I sort of didn't, I had no idea really what I wanted to do. And I felt like I didn't, I don't know. I never like let myself really commit to writing in as serious a way as I probably should have. And so I was just doing, I was like, I was doing jobs that involved writing, like marketing type mm-hmm. jobs. Um, so I did a little bit, I was like a teeny tiny bit involved in like literary scenes in New York, but way more as a spectator. And like occasionally I would read something at an open mic. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, it wasn't till I, uh, until I started applying to MFA programs that I let myself like embrace this as like a serious lifelong mm-hmm. pursuit. Um, yeah. So I feel like I've really changed a lot in this, in the like amount of my self that I put into writing and like the extent to which I define myself as wanting to be a, a writer. So if you, if you had to give like a, like a bio or, mm-hmm. um, cause I, I had a, a friend of mine on last week who, um, who writes, but we consider herself a musician first. Like she, um, she went, she got, she has her master's in vocal performances and, and is an actual like professional opera singer. Hmm. She, she did something recently and got paid for it, which is amazing. That's but cool. like in, in your, if you had to give like a litany of, of things that you are, where would, <laughs> where would writer fall in that, in that list? Like closer to the front, like in the middle? Uh, it'd be way closer to the front. Yeah. Um, I think it might even, it might be the first thing. Mm. Um, not so much because I like think of myself as being really good at it, but just because I want to, like, I want to commit to it. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of aspirational thing where it's like, yeah, I am like, I'm putting, th- I'm putting this at the beginning of my self description because it means so much to me and I'm like ready to assert that it means this much to right. me. Yeah. So I think, I think it'd be pretty much near the beginning, but Speaking of, I met somebody at like a, a writer's conference this summer who has a book coming out September 22nd. Not, uh, she's a, a New Yorker, not a, not a Baltimorean, but she's also a perf- uh, like classically trained opera singer. Really? Um, and she has a book of poetry coming out. Yeah. <laughs> if you... Uh, yeah, her, okay, so her name is uh, Sokuntari Svai. She goes by Sok. Um, her last name is S-V-A-Y. And her book is called Apsara in New York. And I'm really excited about it. Cool. Well, anyway, but opera sing yeah. Opera singers, poet opera singers. I think it would be so cool someday to get the chance to like write uh, the libretto for an opera. That would be awesome. There was somebody at I think it was a City Lit. Um there's someone oh no. It was either City Lit or AWP. I don't remember which one. Um 
but there were so many that came by my table and we were just kind of chatting and she she had written uh, a libretto for an opera that was being performed oh no i i think it may have been in at awp because she was down there to oh shit fuck no damn it I don't know. It was either it was either in DC or is it Peabody? I'm mm-hmm. I'm leaning more towards Peabody because this seems like something that they would definitely do. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had written a um, the libretto for an opera that was being performed like that weekend. So she would, and it was the first time in like I think like twenty or thirty years it had been performed. So she was hmm. down to to just to see to see it. Oh man, yeah. I did a little bit of playwriting in college. Uh, like I took two playwriting classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so hard, so challenging for me. But it was also really cool to see someone else um, read things that I had written. And just really weird. And I think that's that's an experience that a lot of people who primarily do poetry or even fiction don't, don't yeah. have. Yeah, and I think a lot of the time, especially in poetry, there's such an emphasis on like finding your voice Mm -hmm. and sort of bringing out your own voice um, that I think sometimes I can kind of forget about like the reader bringing their own voice into the poem every time they look at it. Mm -hmm. Um, And something like playwriting, it's like you can't, that reality is so present. Right. Um, Yeah. You're, and especially since you were usually writing for, like a character, it's like you mm. you are you are intentionally giving someone else a yeah, voice, even yeah. if it is your voice or there's bits of your voice in there. It like you are you are crafting. Um, so there's like the, there's a bunch of layers to it. It's like you're you're crafting a voice for someone else, mm-hmm. but each someone else who reads that, like you're you, there's this abstract I guess like ideal character that you're writing for, but everyone who performs this, this that piece or that character brings their own interpretation to it. So yeah. it's like mm-hmm. it, you create sort of an infinite regression of, mm-hmm. um, of like meaning or of interpretation or of whatever. Um, yeah, yeah which it's is, like, a, it's all, like by the time it comes out of the other person's mouth, it's sort of a copy of a copy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Or even like as part of a workshop, um, like in the same workshop where I'm at Soak, um, we, it was, it was, uh, the workshop leader had us, um, had other people read out loud, like, had someone read out loud a poem by another person. Okay. Um, And that was really helpful because you could, like, you could hear where your intended rhythms or syntax made sense to the person who was reading it and where they didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found that really helpful. And it's something that, it seems so, like, easy and obvious, but I haven't done it very often. Um, And it was fun. There was a friend of mine, I think from one of his readings, um he his not gimmick but his like his shtick for the for the, i mean that makes that makes it sound like <laughs> something cheap but it was it was really cool um he all the poems that were read were read by other people like audience mm-hmm. essentially like audience plants yeah um and it was just it was a really incredible experience to hear um like his like his I guess sort of like an invoice of, um, invoice, an in, <laughs> inverse of, um, writing, like writing a script for someone to perform where mm-hmm. you're writing of, you're writing a voice for someone else where it, you're, it's your own voice being performed by other people, which is a, yeah. which is really like haunting and sort of disembodied 
<laughs> sensation that I got, even though I was not like, you know, they weren't my poems, but just that sort of like, yeah. there's this, I don't know, like the, a voice being, being separated from the body or from the person that, that crafted it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a really, it was a very surreal experience. Yeah, that's cool. I, yeah. So getting back to the, to where you would put writer in your, mm-hmm. in your litany of things that you are. Yeah. Would you, do you break or do you make a distinction between writer and poet for yourself? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe I would say poet instead. Um, despite the fact that, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, it, uh, you kind of don't want to, you, you, in a certain way, you kind of don't want to say that because you, again, you don't want to make it sound like you're saying it because you think you're the shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like very aspirational for me. And so I think I would say poet. Okay. Um, partly because that's maybe more accurate since that's like 90% Primarily, of why yeah. I write. Um, that's the, yeah. dis- that's usually the distinction for me that if I, um, so oh, this was a couple of years ago when I was thinking of doing like freelance or thinking of writing like blogs and articles and stuff. Mm-hmm. I came to the realization that I'm not a writer because in mm-hmm. my, in my, and this might just be some sort of false separation for me that in my mind being a writer means it's like you you're like i don't know there's a lifestyle that you cultivate or there's a mm. there's that you you know you're you're you there's not just one thing that you write it's like you're you're kind of a an, um jack of all trades renaissance person yeah um person of all trades whatever um whereas for me being like a poet there with even within that there's a very particular like mindset or lifestyle or practice or like mindfulness that for me, it's like that feels like it fits more with what Mm. I do. Mm. And especially, I mean, and this is primarily the case. It's like, I tend, like I've written half of a short story. Mm -hmm. I have, I've had thoughts and aspirations for writing um, like theater scripts. Mm -hmm. Um, But essentially so far what I've produced is, is poetry. Yeah. Um, yeah. But... Well, I think there's also like, I think because there's so many uh, sort of ancillary qualities that become attached to words like writer and poet, mm-hmm. there's like all this like uh, weird baggage of extra things suggested by the term yeah. that say like, uh, like environmental engineer doesn't have. Um Okay. You know, I yeah. think I think there's like it implies like a whole sort of lifestyle or attitude, which I think I don't know, I think like poetry does require a certain attitude or like a certain receptiveness um or attentiveness when I when I feel like I'm doing it right. I feel sort of like attuned to 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 what's happening around me. Mm-hmm. Um but oh. yeah, it's like yeah, it's like it's like you know when you, when you say when you when you use that term to define yourself what image comes up around the actual act of writing poetry right that you have to like weed away yeah. to get at what you actually mean so you i think that you hit on something that i've i've thought about the one of the for me one of the primary differences between poetry and prose um is within prose like fiction most most story like narrative writing um I feel like the goal of that writing is to is to get you lost in the world that the author, like the writer, is creating. That mm. you know, it's like you you want to be immersed in in it. 
whatever, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, even if it's not like a high fantasy or sci-fi thing, even if it's like, yeah, um, I have a uh, Vutran's dragonfish um, hanging out on my little table right now and I'm looking at it. And from what I've heard of it, it's like a noir sort of detective story, mm-hmm. but even something like that, it's you, you want, you want the world that you're crafting to be tangible and palpable enough that someone will sit with the work for the, the length of time that it takes to read it and to be engaging enough that it like it like like the city of baltimore it's like you, you <laughs> it just you, you don't want to leave yeah yeah whereas with poetry i think one it you get lost more in your own internal world like not because mm. i mean with with fiction reading it's like you are kind of you're crafting or you're giving uh i guess life to the world that they're creating but it's you know it's like you're going through yourself like you're going through yourself into their world Mm-hmm. Whereas with poetry, it seems that like you, either it will draw you further into yourself, and so you populate your own personal internal world, or it makes you more engaged with the world around you. Like it, it mm. which is that I think, kind of like the whole attuneness or mindfulness or attention or something. That's like when you're reading poetry, you're really getting. Um, kind of like a crash course in how to see things closely hmm um maybe not all not every poet writes like this but uh, most of the poets that i that i personally read uh, like mary oliver or charles wright or jane hirschfield um it's like you really get that sense of like i'm people these people are paying attention to things in ways that i am i'm either too busy or too like not aware of Hmm. like oh there's i don't know like a shadow on my desk that's a that's that could be a poem if you if you're like close enough to it yeah yeah um, or even, it, yeah it's i think it's yeah it's like uh yeah create like looking at things in a new way is a sort of cliche way to put it or like re re-looking but also bringing kind of like bringing the reader like bringing me as the reader into my own body i think yeah is something where like fiction tries to like create a world around you that feels like you're living it in mm-hmm. your own body, whereas poetry, it draws kind of you does in. the opposite. Yeah. It, it like reminds you of your own existence as a physical being. Um, that's a, that's a really I think that's a really tantalizing way of putting it. That like poetry mm. is is a means of reminding you, <clears throat> like of yourself and of the world and of you. Like it's it's a it's a reminder of existence. Yeah, like I mean, I really love um, Natalie Diaz, and she was the workshop leader at this conference that I went to and she's just like incredibly amazing um and she has she only has one full-length collection out and I think she's coming out with a new one soon Mm -hmm. but um yeah I think a lot of her like pedagogy and things that she was like themes that she was repeating in her advice to us had to do with like thinking not only of poems as sort of physical bodily experiences but like the words themselves as bodies because, you know, like letters began as little diagrams Mm -hmm. of like, and the the letter A was like an ox. And then over time it got flipped over. Um, and she did this really interesting presentation that included. So they started out as like pictograms. Yeah. So like, like all language kind of started out as like physical, bodily, visceral, um, kind of concrete, like things happening Mm -hmm. um and to sort of not lose sight of that and to sort of like break language 
back into this kind of power that it initially had, but sort of inevitably loses over time. Right. But you have to kind of keep finding that. And that's one of the main things that poetry seeks to do is to kind of refresh or renew or re-energize language, which has been either broken or stilted or, or numbed. Um, and I found, I found, I found that really powerful and she said all of these things much more eloquently than <laughs> I can. Um, but I, I think that's, yeah, I, I'm like, I'm always looking for that. Um, anyway, her, her, her book is called, uh, when my brother was an Aztec and it's, it's really, really <laughs> good. Um, yeah. So I just, I had, um, I had a little bit of relevatory something, which could potentially be a poem. Any poets out there that are listening, if you want to write this poem, go for it. Um, I think it would be, this might be pie in the sky thing, but to get, to do like an anthology where everyone writes a poem on, like all the poems in in the collection are the, from the same prompt. But anyway, the, the idea that I got, keeping with like language, um, as like pictograms and as the power and like the kind of conjuring aspect it i i feel like poetry could be potentially um like a like the the words and the actual like poems themselves are incantations to conjure yourself Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah the idea of like uh being uh like a, a a poem or a song being part of a ritual, um, or like, yeah, sort of physically making things happen, or sort of like spiritually making things happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the whole idea of like invocation, or, I don't know, like burial rites, or there's all, yeah. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really, I think I'm, pro- I'm will probably be enamored with this or thinking about this for a while, but the idea of, it's like you do, you do a summoning but the thing that you're summoning is like yourself, is like yourself, or is the actual like the real world. It's not it, you're not you're not trying to take something like intangible and bring it into the world. You're trying to bring the tangible world like back into itself almost. There's like a like a weird sort of Mobius strip that's like you're inserting the real into the real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think of examples of poems that do this really well and really specifically and off the top of my head nothing's immediately (laughs) but um yeah well i mean i feel like like anything by mary oliver is like it it you you get dropped right into like you're walking with her essentially it's Mm. like you're you're out for a walk and you see you see the things that she sees and you engage with them in the ways that she engages with them which i is i think more so than Maybe aside from theater, because um, theater usually affects me deeply and profoundly, and I don't really understand why it does that. Mm. Um, well, actually, maybe. So, I was going to say that I feel like poetry is, of of like the written or like the language arts, poetry is probably the best way for you to feel, or for, for someone to be engendered of uh, empathy for someone else. Because hmm. like you're being, you're being knit to someone in a really intimate way way or like you're being knit to their perceptions or their whatever like their internal world in a very intimate way um and a lot of the i think the really powerful poems there's a level of immediacy with them it's like it's stuff's happening now it's like you you cannot it's it draws your attention here now and i think Mm. i think theater 
the reason one of the reasons the theater affects me the way that it does is because it's like this shit's it it's now it's like <laughs> not it's like even these even though these events might be hap like being things that have been depicted or the thing like the things that are being performed or things that have happened before mm-hmm. it's like it's still like the performance is happening now yeah well yeah there's this like uh it's like uh i think also part of what's exciting about theater is sort of the possibility of failure is always there so i just um. i just saw a post this morning about i think it was killian murphy was talking about um theater I actually let's see if i can find it um <laughs> yeah sure um, um but the, yeah it's like and i think that's also why stand-up is so ooh. really affects me a lot because it's like they could just really fuck something up at any moment um and that balance between like perfect control over language and complete chaos um, is really exciting, and it comes through in any kind of live performance. Um, I think really strongly, uh, and I think it also can come through in poems on the page uh, when they are sort of done really well and um, managed in a really um, like capable way yeah well I'll, I'll see if i can find it later but the the gist of it kind of yeah the, the idea that um he was saying that one of the things that attracts him to theater is the idea that things can go wrong that like <laughs> a performer could forget their lines a light could burn out the curtain won't open and there's this like i don't know like you're it feels like you're constantly battling to keep things working but mm-hmm. you don't really it's like you don't really have control over that stuff. You're kind of at the whims of whatever. Um, but there's there's that energy, like there's a uh, really palpable energy that's felt when you're put in, when you're dropped into that space that other things don't have, I think. Which I think, so I'm, if I ever directed, which is <laughs> not, probably not, not ever going to happen, um, I would want to direct as if, like for a movie or something, as if I was directing a play. So, like, try to get it, like, um, you just you rehearse the scene a whole bunch. Um, you have a couple of different cameras. But, like, if you if you do a take, any any other angles that are happening will be happening, will be cut from that one take. Like, mm-hmm. you're not going to mix and match shit. It'll mm-hmm. all be... Um, and I think, like, this is specifically with musicals, but... Um, most musicals, I don't know if, if listeners know this or not, but most musicals, um, the cast will, like movie musicals, the cast will go in, like before the shooting starts, will record all the tracks, and then during uh, the actual filming, they will play, like, play back the They'll recording. They'll lip sync them? Or? Yes. Okay. And then the performers will lip sync, essentially. Um, which I've heard, like I've read some things, and some some actors have said it's like that's a really tough thing because you have to make all of your acting decisions before you actually are in like the <laughs> moment to to do whatever it is to to do whatever scene you're doing. Um, and I like I have I have some issues with the most recent uh, Les Mis with uh, I've never seen Russell Crowe and Hugh Jackman and Anne Hathaway, but. One of the things that I love about it, and this is this is something that I think you would you would probably catch, mm. um, when they filmed it, all of the singing that happened happened during the take. Oh, that's cool. So they had like they would have a little earpiece where someone would be playing piano, so they could get their like their 
um, hit their notes or get like the tempo or whatever. And then after that, whatever they would, um, after they had the, like the people singing on camera, then for the soundtrack, the orchestra would match their tempo and their beats to the person's performance. So you can make like in a, um, when Anne Hathaway is singing, I dreamed a dream. There's moments where like she pauses and she takes, she draws things out and she has moments where it's like, she can choose in those moments that I'm going to make this sound like this. Hmm. Um, and then the orchestra just matches her. And I think like that perform, like I've seen Les Mis a couple of times and it as a performance hits me a lot. And I like the movie came, that movie is the closest that any movie has gotten to like that level of emotional effect, like being affected emotionally. Hmm. And I think it's because all of the all of the choices and all the shit that they did were in, like, in the moment. Like mm-hmm. it, that sort of means it's like it's the the now of it instead of you know, like, I I made this decision acting decision th- three months ago. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is this is totally unrelated. But I'm just gonna ask a question because I just feel like it. Go for um, it. Ha- what have your experiences been like? Um, Wow, I just lost my train of thought. (laughs) I have not had enough coffee. Um, What what is it? How do you like tell people who have never read poetry before about poetry? Um, And have you ever like gotten someone interested either in your own writing or in someone else's writing who you really love? Um, Yeah, I'm always curious about that. Um, Hmm. Well, I, I... I've had one person in recent uh, recent memory that this has happened, but like most of the, I think it's like most of the people that I'm friends with now or that I interact with um, are predominantly writers. Mm-hmm. So even if even if they don't read a lot of poetry, going through either like an uh, English like undergrad or an MFA, um, they will have been exposed to it at least in to some degree. So there's there's not. I haven't met a whole lot of people that are like totally new to poetry. Um, if I'm trying to get people to read like the books that my press my press has published, if I'm at like a literary festival or something, um, I tend to try to talk more about what the book is about, like not like not played up so much that it's it's poetry. Just be like, I have I have one book that's essentially like a treatise against white collar jobs, or, like white collar capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to play that. Um, but, um, a couple of years ago, my dad's dad, uh, died and I, it was on a Sunday and I, I think he passed the Saturday night and I woke up on a Sunday and I was checking Facebook on my phone and I saw that my aunt had posted something about my grandfather being like ha- having passed. I was like, Oh shit. Cause mm-hmm. I like, I didn't, I had no idea that he was sick. Um, so I wrote. Like that day I wrote a poem about him and then I kind of sat on it a little bit and then I reached out to my dad and I was like, you know, um, I don't know, like I don't really know what you're going through, but if you want to talk, I'm here for you. And I like I wrote something about Zeta, um, if you'd like to read it. Um, so I sent it to him and one night while I was at Whole Foods shopping, um, he called me and just started like asking me questions about the poem, which um, was something that we never really talked about and... I don't think that he's had a whole lot of experience with like, like poetry. It's, you know, it's like, it's the kind of quote unquote poetry, like the, the stuff that, you know, like Frost or mm-hmm. Wordsworth, that's sort of like the, like the, the accepted, accepted and accessible 
quote unquote canon place. Um, yeah, which is predominantly old white dudes, usually European white dudes. Um, but it was it was a really amazing experience to sit in my car and talk to my dad about my like my poetry and like specific word choices because there's hmm. there's one there's one line in there that something along the lines of like I feel um like a a boarded up house or something like that and like mm-hmm. that that particular imagery he was questioning me about and it was neat for me that it's like I intuitively I knew what these what that stuff meant but to sit there and have to actually explain like well this this is the this is the emotion I was feeling, and this is kind of where I was, the image that I got when I was thinking about this, so this that's where this line came from. Um, and then I sent him uh, Mary Oliver's 10,000 Mornings um, as sort of like a, you know, a triage that, like, because that, that particular collection of hers deals a lot with, like, growing older and the kind of grief of, like, the being surrounded with death and, you know, kind of knowing that it's it's there. Um so I thought that that might do him um, do him some good to just like read and to just you know to have to have that sort of emotional space to go to. Um, and then recently he he brought it up and he was like you know I I've it's been on my nightstand like since you sent it and I was like well this is this is awesome if you um, so we talked a little bit and I I gave him some titles of other Mary Oliver collections and he picked out uh, DreamWork so I ordered it for him off of Amazon and and sent it to him um, but we haven't talked about it yet. Um, but I think, I think if I had to, if there was someone that was totally un, like unaffiliated and had, and knew nothing about poetry, I think that I would probably explain it to them as, um, like a, an expansion of like internal emotional space. Hmm. Um, or if they are more geared to visual arts, I would try to connect it with, um, like abstract expressionalism. Hmm. That's sort of like the main, or at least the poets that I'm, that I find myself gravitating more and more towards are poets that, um, try to convey, I think, emotional experiences. And like, they really, like they, they're, they're writing into, um, some sort of, um, poetic event or poetic moment that you are that you arrive to and you, there's this sort of like oh god <laughs> um and like that's when i see like rothko or um odwili odetta at the, oh. the um at uh, i think that, <laughs> i want to say that was his, his last name um at the Vermont Studio Center, you know, just like there's there's a there's a emotional connection that I make to it, um, and mm. that's primarily what I seek out when I when I read poetry. It's like I I want to feel um, like there are there's some heat or there's some fire being lit like right at the core of of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't I didn't really have an answer to my oh, own question. Yeah. So I feel maybe it was a little bit unfair of me to, no, 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 to no. ask it. But yeah, I well, because I'm thinking about this a little bit. Because in a couple of weeks, I'm right. Gonna, you'll be teaching. Yeah, I'm gonna have to teach uh, intro to fiction and poetry to undergraduate students with like tons of different majors for whom it's a required class. Right. And so that is a question which 
does not have to be answered in the course of teaching this class, but like really should be. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I don't really know. It's, it's hard because I think people either think of poetry as like, oh, uh, eat your vegetables, read your poetry. Like, it's good for you, we promise, even though you mm-hmm. won't like it. Um, and I think that's most people's experience of poetry. Um, so it's either perceived as like impenetrably complex or on the other hand, a really overcomplicated way of just like writing an emotional button or motto. Right. Um, and I like think an it's aphorism. hard. Yeah, like it's hard not to, it's hard not to teach poems as having like a lesson that you can get mm-hmm. out of them at the end um, because that's a very sort of satisfying it's like okay you've accomplished the learning objective you have like you have like gotten the message out of the poem and I think that's a really tempting way to teach things because that's the way in which our kind of education system is oriented um, so yeah but I really I mean I would love it if I could get a couple people to just sort of be interested in poetry or at the very least to like have a real personal experience um, or, like, react in any strong way right. at all yeah. um, to a poem. And in some ways, that's, like, almost more important to me than understanding of technique. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think, like, learning about how things are made helps you appreciate those things more. Like, yes. I reupholstered <laughs> some chairs the other day. And I felt so good about it. It was, like, the most amazing thing. Uh, and I felt, like, so happy to understand how this, like, very simple process worked. Mm-hmm. And so that's super satisfying in itself. And yes. you can do the same thing with, like, a poetic line. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, yeah, finding a way to, like... Yeah, and also I think I think poetry is harder than, than fiction to sell someone on. Because, yes. like... Oh, yes. Like, with novels, it kind of does... To a certain extent, it like does what it says on the box. Yeah. Um, and here's a story about X, Y, and Z. Yeah, and you can kind of do the same thing with poetry, but again, you risk like oversimplifying something to the extent that it doesn't sound interesting anymore. Yes. Um, and I think sometimes that does happen with poetry, and I think it's like, I think especially it happens with like certain books of poetry by like people who are not from the United States. Because it's easy for someone to say, "Oh, this is this is a this is a book about like the immigrant experience," right? Um, and then it, it's just like when you summarize that in such a way as to like perpetuate the marginalization that the book tries to escape, then mm-hmm. it's like, "Oh, this is this is not good." Um, so uh, yeah, I find it really difficult to get other people excited. Uh, about poetry, but I feel like it's something that I'm doing wrong and I could do it better. Mm. And it's like, yeah, anyway, I don't, I don't really know where I'm going with this. Well, I think... Um, but the idea of, like, pro, uh, like uh, teasing without overly summarizing... Yes. Um, because the whole idea is that a poem is supposed to, like, say something that... Say something that cannot be said. Um, yeah. And the problem with that is it's... It, it, if it's good, it's kind of unsummarizable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like the like the perfect like the perfect map is the landscape itself. The, yeah, like the, yeah, or like of. the mm-hmm. the story that's like the the best summary of the story is like the story itself. That there's certain things that you that you can't leave out, or that you can leave out, but you're not you know it's like you're not going to get like how how blurry or how opaque of a of a you know of a description of his, of something do you want to do you want to give. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like if I, if I had to, if I had to 
throw poetry at someone that was totally unaffiliated with poetry. I would try to figure out um, like where they were coming from and what interest them or some like some connection because mm-hmm. as you were as you were just like talking um i was thinking about not that i wasn't listening but kind of was working <laughs> through an image of how dare you no it's fine. of um that like if if there is some lesson or something to be learned from a poem or from uh from poetry in general i think that it's like it's it's not like a moralistic. This poem tells you X, Y, and Z. It's mm-hmm. more of a like this poem teaches you how to loiter somewhere, or like <laughs> um, the like this this poem teaches you how to how to slow down and take up like how to exhale because hmm. like you've been holding in a breath for years, and this poem will let you get some of that out and let some new air come in. Because mm-hmm. um, I was thinking of like experiences that I've had that I, I that I can equate with reading a poem that hits me solidly and like one of them would be looking at a like a looking at a bonfire and just watching it hmm. one would be looking at the stars one would be um like out in the forest like as you're as you're walking and you're stomping and then you suddenly just stop and you hear one how quiet and then two how not quiet the forest actually is like that those sort of like noticings hmm. um yeah or i mean it's yeah, maybe the, the the sort of best way to describe or create excitement about poetry is to, I mean, again, like, following uh, the words of Natalie Diaz, like, bring it back to the body. Letting out a breath you've been holding in for a long time. There's that famous Emily Dickinson quote about, like, feeling like the top of your head's coming off. And, like, <laughs> when, I, when that happens to me, I know that is poetry. I'm probably butchering the quote, but that's more or less what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, sort of describing what, like, what, actually physically happens to you in your body when you read these things i think is as close an approximation as you can get to yeah. like and talking think, about why it's exciting and, and, and I, cool. I think i think one of the one of the issues and i use this in extreme air quotes mm-hmm. um that poetry might have um that it's tough to 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 generate a lot of excitement for is that i i think a great deal of poetry deals with small quiet moments Hmm. and there's not like it's difficult to be really excited about seeing dust float through a beam of light (laughs) you know like there's there's certain there's i feel like there's a level of inherent energy that 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 scene or a poem describing that scene has and it does not get above just sort of um like deep like deep appreciation of or like Hmm. contemplative piece about Hmm. um and I, like, I've, I experienced this with, with myself that I, um, about, like, if in the, uh, in the gradient of happiness, I get about as high up as contentment, just because my energy output is not, like, high enough to get me to, like, ex- you know, like, oh, fuck, I'm super excited about this thing. It's like, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and I think, I don't know, I, I think that. Like, that's, you know, one of the issues, but I think that that's one of the, the really, the benefits of poetry is that it, it draws you, it, it focuses your attention on stuff. Um, and it, um, you know, I mean, like laser, laser-like, laser it'll draw your attention to something, but it'll also really fucking pinpoint some emotion that you feel. Hmm. Um, and I think for me, it's like, that's why, um, like, I try to, because I deal with stuff like emotionally 
um, or like I'm I'm very I exist a lot in in the things that I feel. I try to draw things and to like I try to connect emotional experiences. So like this poem makes me feel like I'm standing in a window watching snowfall, like the first mm-hmm. snowfall of of winter. Like that's mm-hmm. like there's some sort of emotional whatever at the core of that, um, which I really think is like that's it's the like the the transfer of things that you cannot actually verbally transfer that you somehow are able to verbally transfer mm-hmm. which is like and this might be my way of thinking about haiku that it's kind of overlaid and colored all of my my viewing of other poetry but like that's that's kind of the gist of haiku that like the haiku poet knows that they've they've had an experience and made them feel something and they know that the thing that they feel exists somewhere beyond words that they could not in their in like a thousand years have the skill to actually physically describe or verbally describe the thing that they felt. So instead they're going to give you the thing that they like the trappings of the thing that they experienced in such a way that it engenders the same sort of feeling in you. Mm -hmm. So you get sort of like you have the emotional transfer, but it's a very roundabout emotional transfer and Mm -hmm. it necessitates somebody else sitting there with your palm and like filling in all the, the open blank space, like a, um, if you've seen readers, you specifically, I mean, not readers, listeners, or you specifically, JP, mm-hmm. um, like Zen calligraphy, um, where it'd be like, mm-hmm. like a, a branch with a bird on it. Mm-hmm. And there's like no background, no nothing. Or yeah. like Mount Fuji, just the, like the mountain with some mist. Yeah. And that's it. I feel like haiku operate in a very similar way that you get the, the sort of the, the smallest but most necessary aspect of the structure, like the emotional mm. structure or the experiential structure, and then you are free to imp- like fill in the rest of it with yourself, mm. um, mm-hmm. which, like you will, I feel like you will still wind up in the same sort of ballpark feeling, but it'll be a very personal, uh, unique feeling to you because yeah. you are you are filling in all of this with your own like. Oh yeah, I had that like that night, like snowfall, mm-hmm. you know, like cold window, snow's falling, you know, whatever. Did you yeah. you have your own memories and your own experiences to draw upon, but there's that that sort of like you're in that whatever feeling. It's like, "Oh yeah, I've I've been there." <laughs> and I think I personally I think that that's like the the biggest power of poetry or any any sort of like emotional transfer is to 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 kick off in someone else the feeling of like yeah. Oh yeah, I know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's a it's like a refusal to manipulate, and I think I have Ooh. a really I have a really hard time with this because a lot of the time I'm like I want to tell you something, <laughs> and that's an impulse that I really need to avoid. And I think it comes from like, you know, working in jobs and marketing or like oh, but you're writing, trying to writing lead someone to a, writing a feeling. speeches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you're trying to convince or you're trying to put forth a particular message in such a way that someone, anyone hearing this would write down the same quote from it and like put it in their article about the speech Mm -hmm. being given. Um, But uh, with poetry, it's it's often, you're often trying to do exactly the opposite of that, which is like meticulously and caringly remove judgment and manipulation from your work. And I think that's something that I have a lot of trouble with, um, as I I said, Mm -hmm. uh, so that you're not like, yeah, it's... Someone else, I talked to somebody recently about this, uh, 
who said that they didn't like reading fiction because they felt like they were being manipulated. And they felt like there was something that really? the author wanted to make them feel. And they were like being bullied into feeling it. Which wow. is, I had never heard that opinion before. Um, but, uh, whereas, and they compared poetry to tarot cards. Where it's like, there's no actual sort of magic or divination happening in the tarot cards. But it's sort of like you put down these associative pieces and then you and then it's figure out you. the meaning behind it's like it. up to you wow. and the tarot card reader together through a conversation to like figure out what these the like seven of cups or whatever means for you in this particular moment right which gets back to the whole i mean which, not not yeah. exactly connected but the whole like sort of conjuring that there's there's some sort of mm-hmm. there's some sort of like pseudo spiritual potentially just intuitive process that that happens when you're when you're reading mm-hmm. um which one of the reasons why I connected it to um, abstract expressionless artwork is that you know so when you look at stuff like that, you just there's some part of you that like doesn't get it, but there's a deeper part of you that gets it but can't can't like verbally tell the part of you that doesn't get it. It's like oh, this mm-hmm. is what this is about. You just have to like sit in the like okay, it's yeah. like I have this impression of this you know it's like there's there's some color or something that's being pressed into me and i have the outline of it and it's like okay mm-hmm. that's okay yeah it's like i i really want to watch the next episode of game of thrones like <laughs> i want so badly to watch the next episode of game of thrones um and in a certain way that is kind of like a level of manipulation because they like arrange cliffhangers in certain yeah. ways such that i really want to find out what happens next or like I want to go back to my house right now oh. and play this video game that I love because I know that I'm like X number of experience points away from getting another loot box. And so <laughs> it's like there's that kind of like sort of stringing you along thinking, which is important and very necessary uh, in like maybe a collection or in uh, a story if you want to sort of keep people reading. But it's a it's like a different, it's kind of like the opposite impulse of, what you want someone to think about in a poem or not even what you want someone but what you want someone to like feel in in like again i'm saying this word too many times but like what you want someone to feel in in their body which is like the like the making of the, the making of the reader's own meaning kind of unhindered by in some ways unhindered by the author's own conceptions yeah so i just i think i think that you i think you just unlock something well, it's this feels profound to me, but I don't I don't know if it will be for anyone else. But I think that you are exactly right with, and I've I've noticed this. Like I read um, uh, Kafka on the Shore and Wine Bird Chronicles by Murakami in the last like month or so, mm-hmm. and I I have I don't know if this is because of my own like latent obsessive tendencies or if this is just good quality writing. But there were some nights that I would be like reading, it'd be like twelve and like. Yeah, I I want to I I want to know what happens. I'm gonna keep mm-hmm. going. Then it'll be like one thirty. I'm like, I kind of really want to know what happens. Then it'll be like two thirty. I'm like, fuck. And that's great. I love that feeling. Yeah, um, and it's and I'm yeah. but like there is that there is that with with narrative writing there is that like that allure that temptation that's like you want to know what happens next. And I feel mm-hmm. like with poetry, the poetry that I'm that hits me the most are like I think the poetry that I might. That I might, sorry, that was my phone. That I might, uh, I forgot to silence it. That the poetry that I might actually want to write is the opposite effect. I want someone to read one of my poems, put the book down, and go do something else. (laughs) 
but that but that not not because that they're done with the poem but because they've read something that affects them so profoundly it's like i gotta i gotta go like i gotta go for a walk and just let this <laughs> sit you know yeah that i don't i don't want them to just devour my book i want them to like to sit and to just be like fuck like after reading a poem be like what the fuck and just throw the book down and leave but have it like <laughs> like hanging out in their subconscious for you know just like seeping deeper and deeper into them over the course of a yeah. week and then they come back to the book and be like fuck man well that's one of the cool things about murakami too is like he's got all the like plotty kind of what's happening next excitement but then when you get to the end of the book <laughs> oh, you yeah. sort of you're sort of like <laughs> yep. wait well all of these things happened but but why? Yeah. Or I mean, it, and that sounds like a really unsatisfying feeling. But it's like there will be a, I don't know. Or in the the Wind Up Bird Chronicles, mm-hmm. it's like there's an aspect of the plot having to do with like going down into this well and mm-hmm. entering this sort of like spiritual alternate like world, dream world. Sort and like of. he, yeah. like you have to do that. The character has to do that in order to figure out the like one of the sort of mysteries um, that are at the heart of the book. But. But like the, the the whole like dream nether realm is never explained. Nope. So it has this quality of like you really feel these like weird, conflicting, interesting ways about it, which the book doesn't resolve, but it's constantly making you think it's about to resolve. Mm-hmm. Um, which so I feel like, like it is... sort of like leaves this residue of feeling. Um, and I think that's that's where where sort of the poetry or the like. And I don't I don't yeah. know if this I don't want to make generalizations because Murakami is a Japanese author, but a lot of at least the, a lot of the Japanese poetry that I've read um, throughout, you know, like from Basho up to contemporary stuff, um, th- a lot of it is really good at the implication, mm-hmm. which I feel like the, you know, I feel like expository is like the, the killing stroke of poetry. Like some poetry mm-hmm. needs a little bit of, of expository, but, you know, like the, in, in fiction, there are these, you know, like there's, paragraphs that it's just setting scene mm-hmm. that you like it helps but you can skim them and you don't lose anything from like from the book itself whereas with poetry it's like you need like if there's any word or any stanza that that ejects the reader from the experience of the poem it's like you've you've lost because mm. you have mm-hmm. like you have a page maybe two pages yeah to, to, to like catch them and <laughs> i feel like murakami like reading his stuff there's a there's a lot of like there's no explanation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of implied things. It's like you like you know characters will be like, well, you know the answer to this question to the main <laughs> character, and you're like, and he's like, and you know, come to think of it, I did. And you're like, well, I don't. I don't know what the answer to this is. <laughs> but there's. I was actually talking to my writing group about this um, a couple meetings ago. The the idea of feeling like being unsure or unknowing in a poem versus to 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 something for something to be unknown because it's obscured or implied versus unknown because um it feels too complex or it it's like it feels like the writer is too smart for you <laughs> and it, i feel like they like if you if you're left unknowing something because the the like it feels too impenetrable i feel like you're usually coming away with a level of fury like infuriation or ir- yeah. at least irritation it's like well shit you know it's like i have to puzzle this shit out whereas mm-hmm. the other one if it's obscure and it's mur- and it's murky and it's like implied there's a sense of like I w- i'm gonna sit and think about this yeah for well, a it's while so it's like i think it's it's um it kind of goes back to to humility or 
um, mm. something like that, in the sense that if you feel like if you if you read something and you feel like the author knows something and doesn't want you to understand it because they're smarter than you, then like that sucks. Yes. Um, but if you read something and you feel like if there's a lack of understanding or if there's confusion or if there's ambiguity, it's the ambiguity that the poem itself feels, or that yes. maybe maybe the author or like the author, feels yeah. That it's like that. There's no. And then I, it's like then you're then you're like in it with them. Yeah. Um, and I think that is really powerful. Um, but when it feels like someone's being obscure just to fuck with you, or it's like, like that they that they obscure. have, and I, yeah, I think that that's what it is. That if if the if it feels like the author has the answer, or the the writer whoever it is has the answer and is not giving it to you, it's like they're they're forced. So. There's a level of like reader participate participation. <laughs> participation. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> participation. Um, in you know in any any sort of art, and I think that there are some some artists that that do audience participation better than other ones. But if there's if there's the sense of like the author has, like if the author knows the answer and has given you everything that you need to figure out what the answer is, that's a level of like, oh shit, I can figure, like murder mysteries or, you know, like whodunits sort of things. It's like, oh, I can figure this out for myself. And you feel that sort of like, oh yeah, like repolstering mm-hmm. something. It's like, yeah, I figured this out. Uh-huh. Whereas if the author knows the answer and does not give you anything that you need to figure it out and sort of like lauds that or lords that over you, like that's infuriating. Yeah. Or if the author, like, if you come to a point and the like, there's this question, like you said, and the author doesn't know, and you know that the author doesn't know, and he's laid it out. It's like, I, it's like I'm as I'm as clueless about this as you are, and it's <laughs> this, these are just stabs in the dark. There's that sort of like, you're knit to it. It's like, okay, yeah, it's like I'm I'm there with you. It's like I don't know fucking about whatever this thing is either. So yeah. let's like let's postulate together about this, or like it leaves you with this feeling of like, oh shit, I should, I want to think about this more because there's there's this like it's it's obscurity or it's impression that leads you to a place of of larger attention or larger awareness versus something that is being obscured that like shades things and like tightens the light in on you Mm -hmm. um if that makes any sense yeah yeah yeah, I think it goes. It relates to what I was saying earlier about um, the like ways of ways of teaching poetry or introducing it, where you don't like you don't want to feel you don't want to be made to feel stupid, but you also don't want to be made to feel like something's too easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is something that comes up in in video game yes. design too. Like I'm thinking of this game called uh, The Witness, which um, it's a puzzle game. And there's a sort of progression of difficulty. Of oh, the puzzles. is that is that the one where it's like it's it's just puzzles and it's like like you're on an island. Yeah, so sort you're, of you're thing. on an island alone, um, and you could finish the you you can finish the hardest puzzles in the game at the very beginning of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like you're unlocking additional abilities or things like that. Um, but it just it's, it's just that you're learning how to you're like learning how to see patterns, mm-hmm. which then come up in other puzzles. Right. So, like, theoretically, you could beat the game, you could do the hardest puzzle in the game at the very beginning. So the idea is that it's a progression based on, like, learning and familiarity rather than based on, um, like, unlocking or right. kind of achievements. And his goal was to not... The the designer of the game had some quote about, like, I hate it when games make you feel smart. Um, mm. So it doesn't make you... F- yeah, it's not about making you feel smart. It's about actually kind of, like... Understand. Figuring, out, yeah, figuring yeah, yeah. out the vocabulary of the puzzles. And that's, I played, um, I think I did, I think I actually did a podcast on this. Um, do you know Hyperlight Drifter? 
I've heard of it, but I don't know. Um, I don't know what so it's, it is. It's one of the few games or few things that I've kickstarted. Um, and in playing it, it feels a lot like the original Zelda, like the hmm. the old old school Zelda, where you are essentially thrown into this world um, without really any explanation, and you're kind of left to your own devices. But the game, like right from the outset, you recognize that the game rewards like testing all of the boundaries of your areas because there'll be like hidden things. Um, so like exploration, curiosity, um, it like there are there are enemies that are difficult for you to beat, but it doesn't feel like it's a um, it doesn't tell you why you need to beat them. It's just that sort mm-hmm. of visceral like oh shit, I'm woefully underleveled. I need to go get better equipment, or I need to go find things that'll make this stuff easier. So it's like you you as the player are invested in this game instead of being having the game having to tell you why you should be invested. In the in the game, um, mm-hmm. there's a I don't know listeners if if y'all are familiar with uh, Game Grumps or Eagle Raptor Aaron Hansen, uh, I don't know if you are either. But there is a uh, he did um, a cut like a a little a short lived series. He might be doing some more called Sequelitis, where he talks about like games and game design, and he does one incredible one about Mega Man X <laughs> that I would highly recommend watching because it. it it's about this. It's like it's the the game itself kind of teaches you how to play it and how and how like the opening scene you get trounced by this um, by this you know like this robot and there's another character that comes in and saves you and the other characters like you know you someday you'll be as powerful as me but not but not yet <laughs> and the whole game is like you're you're getting armor and you're getting stuff and you you look more and more like this other character and then you finally face the initial bat like the initial boss again and you can wipe you wipe the floor of them and there's that <laughs> sense of like you are invested in in the story or you are invested like holy shit like this is what i can get to or this is what i can become instead of being like oh you need to save the princess because she's a princess and mm-hmm. you know it's what it's what heroes do and it's like well there's no there's no connection to that and i i feel like hmm. i feel like the bet rolling this back in with poetry. <laughs> yeah. The best the best type of poetry is the stuff that makes you personally invested in whatever it is that like, you know, mm-hmm. that it it draws some sort of um that like if you can imagine two two worlds that are out of phase with each other and this poem allows those two worlds to be in phase with each other and to exist like as two separate things but together as in the same space at the same time. It's like that's a really can be a really subtle but very powerful thing to feel. And I feel like the, yeah. the best poems are the things that put you in that space where it's like you are you are yourself, but yet you are existing in someone else's world or like you're inhabiting the way that someone else sees the world, um, but yet you are still, you still maintain your own sight throughout mm-hmm. all of it, which is, it's mm. a weird, it's a weird thing to feel. Um, but... <laughs> so I, I mean, as you as listeners know, I I have questions, um, and usually questions will get answered. I mentioned this last last time. Usually questions will get answered without having to be asked. But I am curious <laughs> about I'm curious about this. How, okay. like, why poetry? When like when did you realize that that was the 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 main like literary art that you wanted to do? How did that come about for you? Hmm. Uh, this makes me think of the TV show Rick and Morty, <laughs> where uh, <laughs> the the idea there, there's I was not this, expecting that. 
there's this character who's like a, a a mad scientist sort of, and he's like incredibly callous. It's like a it's like a grown up cartoon show that's like very vulgar. Um, but there's it is one incredible character. though. Yeah, it is really good. Uh, very dark. Um, but there's this one character who's this like total jerk um, named Rick. And one of the things that the series creators said is that they didn't want to give him an origin story. They didn't. They never wanted to have really? there be one transformative moment where he became who he is, uh-huh. um, which is something that happens a lot in sort of like right. the, yeah. ki- the kinds of sci-fi shows that this show. But like any, I mean, like any superhero, there's the origin story. There's yeah, the, yeah, yeah, and they even like played with this in one episode where you go back to like the moment where everything changed, <laughs> but then you find <laughs> out that, he, that he's just making it up. Yeah, um, and not, and I think that's important to think about because I don't think there was ever like one moment where I was like. I like had a vision, and I was like, "I'm gonna become a poet." Um, <laughs> well, in like okay, in, and I don't think I I don't think I think some people I think some people have like big sort of turn turning of the key moments like that, but I don't, and I think um, it's all like I, I'm constantly growing, um, and I'm never I'm always like getting better. Uh, I don't know, like I I wrote my first poem in high school because like I was dating someone at the time and she like gave me a poem and I was like, Oh, I can write a poem too. (laughs) Um, and, but that didn't mean I'd like became like a quote quote unquote became a poem in that poet that became a poet in that moment. Right. Um, so I don't know. I think just like over time I've, it's like different aspects of writing have meant more to me. Um, and like different people I've read have meant more to me. I think I didn't read a whole lot of poetry until a couple of years ago when I started applying to MFA programs. And it's like, I found it very impenetrable and I was like, I didn't know where to begin or I like didn't know, it was, I don't know, it was just really challenging me to figure, challenging to me to figure out like what I would like mm-hmm. in terms of poetry. Yeah, that's, um, that's tough. And so I found it really hard to get into but as I read more and more, and as I had people recommend me things, and then I either really liked them or really didn't like them, mm-hmm. um, I sort of became more interested in it. So that's kind of my, my like vague non-answer. Um, okay, well... But I think hearing things out loud actually meant a lot to me. Oh, okay. Uh, and I went, to, I went to watch a lot of like spoken word poetry, both in college and uh, after college when I lived in New York. Like I went to the New York Inn. Uh, sometimes I would read something at an open mic, or sometimes I would just watch. Uh, and I think that was a really good introduction to poetry for me, because spoken word has a lot of, like, tropes to it, mm-hmm. as any genre of poetry does. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was, like, getting introduced to when were people doing super exciting, fresh things that made my hair stand on end with these kind of accepted forms Mm -hmm. and when were they sort of retreading familiar territory and then I was like okay so these people some of them also have written books and then I'm going to read those books uh, and then that will lead me to other Mm -hmm. poets Um, and I think now also there's like a really wonderful like the distinction between quote like stage poetry and page poetry is pretty much completely gone um and some of my absolute favorite like young contemporary poets like Denez Smith, Safia El Hilo, um like Ocean Vong uh 
but I think like Safia El Hilo is like my like I'm such a cheerleader for her because she's incredibly amazing and she has sort of completely eliminated the distinction between performance poetry and page poetry. Wow. Um, in uh, in many different ways, and so I think as I found people who I was really excited about reading and really admired who are alive today, um, that was what made me more excited about. Um, writing my own poetry just as a way of, I don't know, almost as like a fan, an exercise in like fan, <laughs> it's like fan poetry. Fiction. It's like <laughs> I, I like really love and admire your, or like uh, Loma, Christopher Soto, who also goes by Loma, um, is another poet who has a lot of like performative energy, but also s- does super interesting stuff on the page with like line breaks and then like slashes which imply Mm. line breaks, but things are all in the same line. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it's just like, I'm really excited and I see something that that one of these poets does and I'm like, oh man, this is so fun and cool. I just want to like try doing something similar and see what happens as a sort of homage. Um, (laughs) Or like, I mean, Terrence Hayes too is like the king of, he's, he is a little bit older than these other poets I'm talking about, but he is the king of like inventing forms uh, and creating all new poetic forms out of nowhere and I feel very inspired by that impulse but just like the inventiveness uh that I see in contemporary poetry is really in like really energizing and fun and exciting to me yeah and yeah I'm just like more and more excited about it all the time um so I feel like I am still becoming I'm always becoming (laughs) Um, so potential (laughs) potential maybe back back route into this question do you after having written poetry and have been a poet um, for a number of years, is there, in retrospect, you see that there are certain things that are like, certain things about yourself that you feel make you more calibrated towards poetry versus other, other types of writing? Hmm. Mm, I find plot very difficult and challenging. Uh, I think I like really short, concentrated, like, bursts of language, um, and I think when I, even when I read fiction, I think I read for like metaphor and image. Mm, um, not more for so, what happens. More so than I do for story. And so I think that's what inclines me towards poetry is like one of the things that inclines me towards, towards reading and writing poetry is that I look, yeah, I look for like short concentrated like examples of feeling and style and, and like image. Um, even when I'm reading things that aren't poetry. Like when I read nonfiction too, I'm always really taken by like really great images. Oh, like I've been reading a book by somebody else I met at Vermont Studio Center, um, Raghu Karnad. Oh, yeah. Yeah, his book is called Farthest Field, and it's a nonfiction book uh, about World War, uh, India's involvement in World War II told through the eyes of some of the author's uh, relatives who fought in World War II. Uh, and it's got so many just like beautiful, lush uh, images in it. And it's cool because I'm learning a lot of really interesting information. And that's another really important part of the book is telling the story, which is kind of untold. Mm-hmm. Because like Indians fighting in World War II were fighting for the British, the British colonial army, basically. And very soon after, uh, like, the independence fight happened. Yep. And so for the people who, the soldiers who died in World War II, 
um, and sort of didn't have a chance to redeem themselves by then fighting for free India, they're kind of in this historical limbo mm-hmm. that the country kind of is is willing to forget. And so part of this book is reclaiming that story and like telling that story again. And so that is incredibly important. But one of the ways in which it sticks in my mind is through these beautiful, um, powerful images um, of these people, uh, like his, his, his great uncle and grandfather, like going off to the front, uh, and flying in these, in these like rickety old planes and looking down on the landscape. And that's, I think that's, what's going to keep that true story in my mind. And going back to Safia El Hilo, uh, she once, I I saw her read and then she get, she did like a Q and A afterwards. And one of, somebody asked her like why one of the, like why she, uh, is a writer and she said something like I write to prove this shit happened <laughs> um, and one of the best ways to sort of like prove reality or like restate the reality of something is to have that come through in a, a really like visceral physical image um, yeah yeah I'm writing it down <laughs> That might be the title of this episode. Yeah, right. Um, to prove that shit, then that's a that's a quote from Safia El Hilo, because um, she's of she is of Sudanese descent and she writes a lot about her family history intertwined with political history, um, and yeah, it's like I think she, yeah she said like I write to prove this shit happens if I'm not like there aren't there aren't books yeah that tell these stories and so there needs to be a book that tells the story because it's important and like yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is like one of the one of the issues or things that I've thought about um, as like as a poet um, is that like there are so I'm I am ostensibly and I think I may have this is uh, I've may have mentioned this on the podcast before but I am ostensibly a white cis dude um, mm-hmm. I am white which I have tremendously mixed feelings about. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not cis, um, and I am not a dude. I identify as agender. Um, but none of my poetry, at least so far, has dealt with being a gender. Um, and like, you know, my poetry doesn't really deal with me being white either. Um, but I feel like, like there are so many, like, I don't, speaking of just like, of the voice or whatever of my own story it's like i don't really know what i what all i have to offer because there's so many there's so many white guys (laughs) writing poetry and there have been so many white guys writing poetry for years that everyone focuses on and it's like i i don't know there's a lot of times that i feel like like what like what's the point Hmm. you know it's like that there's the space that i occupy could be better used by somebody else Mm. with a story that has either not been heard or has been covered up and deserves to be heard. Um, which is, it's a weird, I don't know. Cause it's like most of the shit that I write, you know, it's like using nature to talk about stuff, which mm-hmm. has been kind of, you know, it's been done. <laughs> a lot of other poets out there writing this stuff. Um, hmm. Yeah. I don't know. So that, that'll be, that'll be it for me in my little self pity corner. But that's, but that's something that like, I don't know. I've always I've always thought about that. And I've always wondered about like what what do I have to offer or if there's like if the best use of the things that I have to offer is essentially to like just seed seed my time and my space to people who 
Like, mm. the fact that there is, you know, inherently privilege around the fact that I, I present as a white guy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, shit has been essentially created for me mm. because I am a white dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like, I, I could easily use my time and cede my space to someone who does not like would not be allowed into the places that I'm allowed into just by default the fact that I look the way that I look hmm. or that I, you know, I've, I've come from where I've come, come from. Um, but I don't know. That's, that's a struggle that has been, that I recognized a couple of years ago and has still been, is being raged that I don't, <laughs> like I'm not, I don't, I don't, I really don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like how you, yeah. How, how do you avoid being like, being like, self-pitying or self-indulgent or self-righteous um yeah i i mean i think a lot about that too because i am i am a a a white dude and i well i mean i'm also hispanic um my mom is from mexico my dad's from the u.s and so i'm like a two-box checker i do the the white and i do the hispanic um and yeah i mean i've tried to write about like parts of my family history in ways that occasionally other readers have been like there's some judgment here, and I didn't intend it, but, like, it doesn't fucking matter what I intended. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact is, something I wrote came out in a way that was not, it, like, wasn't subjective enough. Mm-hmm. And I think if your poems are really coming out of your subjectivity, then that's important, um, and they don't pretend to an objective analysis. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, really important. Um, and I... Yeah. Also, uh, so I'm in the, I'm doing this thing right now called like the Daily Grind where it's a group of people who were supposed to turn in, we're supposed to send a, a reply all email containing a, a like a full draft of something, whether it's like every day for the month Jesus. of August, which has been like really hard and I've been kind of kind of bad about it, but it's super challenging. Whether it's like a page excerpt from a story or a revision of a poem or a new draft of a new poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody in the thread, uh, this poet who's, uh, I think chapbook I haven't read yet, but I really want to, who I also met at Tin House, Cynthia Parker Ohene, um, she said, oh man, I wish I could remember what the quote was, but she because this was like the, during the month of August so we're emailing each other stuff like as all the Charlottesville shit is happening mm. um, and she said something like I want just trying to uh, confront and something expose and confront maybe um, in my poetry and also in my work and I think that was a really good like mantra that's like how am I exposing and confronting uh, the sort of systems of power that, like, have made it so easy for me to write poetry. Right. Um, and yeah, and I think, and it's, I don't know, it's, I'm, I'm like thinking a lot about that too. And I think another thing that is really good to do just in, in, in general from like a community perspective is I want to start writing reviews. I want to start writing reviews of books of poetry. Um, because I think that's something that's always needed and not so much as a like, oh, thumbs up, thumbs down, like five out of five would read book again, but as a way of like putting writers in conversation with each other mm-hmm. and pointing out like unlikely ties between people and uh, and between books and kind of like 
yeah, uh, like bringing bringing books into into a conversation by writing reviews, and that's something I really want to do. Um, and that's also something that like Natalie Diaz suggested. It's so I'm not just like sending my own stuff out, but ideally I am like writing about and thinking critically about uh, other people's work. Right. Which, yeah. You're yeah. You're yeah. adding. You're adding to the to the system. So I really taking... I really want to do that more, and I think that's one way of uh, sort of being like being like being like slightly more generous although it's also kind of selfish in a way because it's like i want to have my review published somewhere that would make me feel really cool right yeah Um, yeah i know i feel like it's like i am i'm so in admiration of of writers that 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 take on um i don't know just like the systematic just shit that's that's out there um, that's, I'm, I, I'm so in awe of that. And I don't know, like, I feel like it's, it's tough, especially with poetry. It's a tough, it's tough. It's a tough thing to like be like authentic or, or genuine. Cause like, if that's like, if that's your fight, you know, it's like that, that's your fight. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I feel like there's, you know, like there's definitely room for that, and there, there should be, and there needs to be room for that type of poetry. But I think that there also should be room for poetry that just like just makes you feel stuff that doesn't necessarily point to anything larger. I, like I, I feel like that should be enough. But I don't know. Mm. You know. Yeah. But I. Because, like, if, if art's expression, it's, like, in what you want to express is just this small thing, I feel like that should be enough. But I'm, like, that, mm. I'm also beginning to call for that to be called into question of myself, too. It's, like, you know, is it? Because I've, I've recognized a tendency in myself that I will push things, you know, with my own writing or myself only so far. And I tend to not, you know, see what's, what's beyond whatever, however far I push myself. Mm. Um mm. And I'm wondering if, like, if if my poetry has suffered from the fact that it's that I'm allowing it to be just this thing where I really should try to dig down and like push it to be something else. But then there's you know it's like if you're if you're paying attention to what the poem wants, if the poem doesn't necessarily want that, then you know like do you do you push it? Do you try to turn it into this thing, or do you let the poem, like the poem or the piece itself dictate where it is that you want it, mm-hmm. that you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I think the, the idea of like pushing through, I feel like I keep quoting Natalie Diaz cause I mean, she just, she's so, she's so brilliant, but she also said something about like, a. there's, if you have a particular word choice, like open the door of that word and see where it takes you. Um, and I think that can be one really good way of like examining examining our own language and thinking about like what is if you have an image in your poem like what is the most harsh or violent this image could be what is the most gentle this image could be can I have both of them at the same time or in close proximity and I think that makes poetry like more makes a poem become more subjective and more felt and Mm. therefore less likely to contain some kind of, uh, like, judgment or oversimplification. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, yeah, one of the things I need to do when I write about, um, like, meeting family members in Mexico who I hadn't met until I was, like, 20 years old is just 
let myself be in that experience and not try to say anything about it. Um, yeah. And I think that's sort of the, the like most honest, um, yes. exploratory way of doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that like doesn't shortchange anyone who was a part of that experience. And I think that that like that in and of itself, I think would generate really powerful poem because po- powerful poetry or powerful, whatever it is that ends mm-hmm. up being what you write. Um, because you're trying to inhabit like the present or like you're, you're dealing with the memory as if it was something that's happening now and you're not like, you're not editorializing it or like stepping out from the memory to comment on it, yeah, which is you're something not, you're not like, t- you're not like taking a humble brag selfie with right. this moment. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Cause there's, I like, I have, um, in my writing group, there are some nonfiction writers and, um, with one of them with one particular piece that was there was some tension and it took me a little bit to figure out what like where the weirdness or where the tension was and it was that the piece was being pre- like the speaker was being presented as if they were living through the memory but certain descriptions for things that him at the time would not have thought it's only what he like he after so many years looking back on the memory would mm. would describe these things in these way Mm-hmm. And and whatever I'm I'm being vague about it because I don't remember <laughs> yeah. the specifics, but but that was the thing. It, you know, it's like if you're if you're actually in this memory, things will come at you, or if you're in this experience, things will come at you, and descriptions will come and present themselves in particular ways. And if like you're looking back on it, there's certain language and certain things. You know, it's like potential judgments or potential you know like whatever. Um, you're not you're not you're being much more. Um, I don't know, expository or editorial. I don't know. There's probably other better words to use. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's like it, but those, those images or those descriptions come from the fact that you one have distance and one you're looking from the outside into this thing instead of being in, you know, in the moment of, of this, whatever it is and trying to find the descriptions of that you would have used at that time mm-hmm. had you been, you know, aware enough or thinking about it to use, in you know whatever like yeah. kind of got away from me but hopefully <laughs> <laughs> hopefully people know what i'm what i'm what i mean mm-hmm. um yeah sorry i was trying to look at i was trying to look up uh this thing that this person had said but i can't get on the internet so i was oh i, I, I got a little <laughs> distracted by that for a second um oh man um yeah i th- I, I i don't know it's because on the one hand, it's like, it's very good. It's like, we need to say, fuck white supremacy, and we need to say, black lives matter. But that's just the very most, like, tiniest, like, pinky toe step to say those things. Mm-hmm. And I think poems that are content to be mere utterances or, like, mere, like, statements of a belief are, like... They, they like pat themselves on the back or like I was saying like yeah. it's like you're taking a you're taking a selfie with right them. yeah you're taking a selfie with the moment rather than like letting the moment unfold yeah um, and I, whether that's like a very tiny minor moment from your life or whether it's something from history um, or a place where those intersect um, and that's yeah. that's something else that I've thought about that like this this is something that came up um, so in at when I was in in Vermont, um, I went to go see the Bread and Puppet Theater. Ended up seeing it twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and after 
one of the performances I was in a car with a, a, a who be, someone who became a friend at the mm-hmm. um, from the center as of like most of the people who I went there be, end up becoming friends but anyway we were talking about um, just like the politics of the bread and puppet theater and um, the person brought up kind of the point that you did that you know it's like just saying you know like we're all in the same boat talking mm-hmm. about like the the refugees from um, Syria and from the Middle East and from Eritrea uh, that are, you know, like dying in the, in the Mediterranean trying to get to Europe. Um, you know, just like, just saying that, like, what, like, what does that, mm. you know, what does that do? Also, like, like, is this actually your fight or are you commenting on this fight? Um, yeah. And that's something that I've, like, in thinking about my poetry, like, if, if, like wanting to try to to confront these these things and not saying that that it's not my fight and it's not my fight or it's it's like it's not it's not my fight but it should be my fight sort of thing is like what what would my voice add to the conversation Hmm. of this yeah you know it's like which again is the whole like it would be i feel like it would a lot of times it would be better for me to just move out of the way and let Mm -hmm. people who's like who've lived it or who who, Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Like, in, you know, instead of writing about the um, the refugee crisis, you know, like create space or like publish a book by a, a Syrian poet mm-hmm. whose experience is actual, like that's their yeah. experience. Yeah. Well, I think anything, whether it's writing or like, I mean, this is this is sort of all um, there's like direct action, which is incredibly important uh, and should be like more of what this conversation is about, I think, mm-hmm. than writing necessarily for us, um, or for, like, for poets, I mean, um, but, like, aside from that, like, what, po- like, what writing has to, t- I don't know, I, I think of writing as, like, a way of expressing what's possible, um, mm. ima- a way of imagining what's possible, or a way of corroborating views of reality, mm. and this is, I'm kind of just, like, making thinking of thinking through this as I'm saying mm-hmm. this. Um, but, uh, yeah, corroborating reality and it's, and I think write like writing can be important by like, cr- like trusting and valuing and saying that experiences matter, which are, which like haven't, in a way that hasn't happened, Ugh, I'm being super vague. Um, but I was just yes, just yesterday I watched the documentary "I Am Not Your Negro," which Ooh. is the the text of it is all um, James Baldwin, and it's like kind of based around mm-hmm. this book that he had kind of started to write but never finished um, about Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and uh, Medgar Evers, and. It's it's a really good documentary. Um, it does feel kind of like it's it's like clearly the product of like an unfinished book, but I think that works to its advantage. But um, one of the things that Baldwin talks about a few times is this sort of like the way in which like a media and literary landscape, which is which is like as white supremacist as the society, mm-hmm. denies the reality of the experiences of people who aren't represented in it. Right. Um, Mm. And so it's like, it's like you begin to feel crazy because 
your reality doesn't show up in any of the things you see. Mm-hmm. And so, long way coming around back to the conversation that we were, that, the question that you asked, um, I think that's a, I, I found that a really like positive and potentially useful way of thinking about my own writing is like, does this, does this thing I'm writing deny the mm. experiences or potentially deny the experiences of like people of color or um, people who are new to the United States or th- anything like that or like um, yeah so I think that's in- that's important and that's like a good litmus test maybe um, and even better like can I sort of corroborate the importance and reality of realities other than my own yeah um and or am i like trying too hard to do that and inevitably failing and only using it as a way of like corroborating my own reality right yeah by making it seem like i understand people who have different life experiences right which is also like fucked up and not good yeah and it's like it's Um, it's the you know the trying to generate that empathy authentically instead of you know, trying to manufacture it. Mm -hmm. Um, Or even like not trying to, not even trying to generate empathy, but just trying to like be true to an experience mm -hmm. Um, and not try to make anybody feel empathy of any kind. Right. But to just have it be, it's like, it's the, it's the natural byproduct that it's like, because you were, you were true to the experience that you're having, like someone, it's like the, the weird sort of when you get, hyper-personal it be, almost becomes universal yeah thing. Mm-hmm. which yeah, is like it's, sort of, it's, it's sort of like un- avoiding assumptions whenever possible like never assuming anything uh, yeah anyway yeah mm-hmm. which is yeah which is like very very hard and um something that i'm not particularly good at but i want to be good at it and yeah and i think also like the more i read and the more I, hopefully the more I write about what I read, if I do what I say I'm going to do and try to write some more reviews, the more I will, like, understand how the mechanics of a piece of writing works and and the more I can, like, cut out assumptions and cut out, like, uh, pretended objectivity and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm a novice, so I'm always, like learning and and trying to absorb as much as I can. Well, we are very quickly approaching the two hour mark. Um, (laughs) and I just have realized that I've not eaten anything today. (laughs) So I think I'm going to, uh, going to drop the last two questions that I typically ask. Okay. Um, well, I hope I haven't like been rambling on too much. It's been really fun. I mean, I've, I've enjoyed it. This is, this is a nice, well, so the, the last podcast was a lot of uh, nineties nostalgia. (laughs) So it's not, it's, this one is a lot of like, Lots of poetry, so I feel like they kind of mm-hmm. they kind of balance each other out. Oh man, okay. I hope I haven't anyway. No, you you've, you've been good time. You've been good. <laughs> um, so as as per usual, per the per the use, uh, my last two questions are mm-hmm. the first one: if you had the vocabulary for this, what is your internal landscape like? Whoa. Mm, okay. And my doesn't doesn't necessarily landscape. have to be. Like physical landscape, uh, mm-hmm. one's one person's was the sky above uh, the southwest hmm. with a cloud in the shape of a dog in it. Um, one was purple, pink, and red colored frosting. Um, one was a geode. Hmm. 
Um, so just like when if you if you were to quiet like quiet your mind and just kind of close your eyes and think about like what like what image comes to mind like what like if you if you were to find yourself just whatever on the inside mm-hmm. what what would that be uh, if you have the vocabulary if it's not yeah. it's cool uh, I think it would be something like uh, a very dense city with a large amount of country around it easily accessible uh, lots of different like lots of people cars moving around well maybe not cars but people walking around or on bikes uh or just moving around in different ways and like some of them have music that's playing uh and so there's this kind of cacophony and then somewhere inside of it there is a small room that is quiet but which has a window out onto the street that can be opened or closed wow okay (laughs) So would you would you be a person in that landscape, or would you say that you were like the landscape? Because for me, um, and I, I know that I've mentioned this a lot, so sorry for those of you who already know this about me, but for my, like, mine would be like South Dakota Badlands Prairie, just mm. like huge, huge open space, open sky, um, and sometimes I'm the land itself, sometimes mm-hmm. I'm wandering through the land, and sometimes I'm watching myself wander through the land. Mm-hmm. So for you, are there are there distinctions that you would that you feel with that, or is it like it's all sort of it's, think, it's all jumbled up into kind of the same? The I think, same. I think I I I probably am a person in the room in the city in the country, mm-hmm. but I would rather I would hope to be the whole landscape and then op- and then open the room and then people can use and then like somebody could use the room. Okay. Um yeah. That's yeah. Are the so the first person that I asked this and this is the she's the reason that I um I started asking all of my guests this. Um her so hers her landscape I believe was like an alien planet hmm. um that was populated in the different the different people that populated it were different, like voices, like not not voices that she heard, but like different mm-hmm. different voices that she would like she drew upon. Mm-hmm. Do you feel the like the people that are populating the city are specific people, or it's just sort of like that energy that like? I don't know. I mean, maybe it's like everyone I've ever met. Okay, um, so it's like the repository of like your your memories. It's just like every per, every person in my in my memory, maybe. Okay. Yeah. But it. it, it but I'm assuming that it does have like you're like wandering around New York or like looking down on a street in New York and like that sort of energy that that is generated from people milling about and wandering around. Yeah. Okay. Either 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 looking out or being in it. Okay. Um, but having the opportunity to 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 sort of like be in a kind of uh, more more intimate like quiet space mm-hmm. or be in the middle of the noise and the and the motion. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Just again, this is like this is kind of off the top of my head. So. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. From what from what I've known from you, from hanging out with you, in relatively close quarters for about a month, that feels like it it fits. I don't know I don't know why, but intuitively that feels like it's that's that makes sense. Hmm. Hmm. Cool. <laughs> and what's hmm. the last question? The last question is: Do you have any questions for me? Oh. Can be any well, can be anything on any topic. Just <laughs> if there's just if you had a question. 
Yeah. Ooh, that's like the end of the job interview question. And it's like you got to have your question ready for the interviewers so yep. that they know you did your homework. I, I have never had a question for an interviewer, and I think that's probably why I've never been gotten a call back. <laughs> really? Never? Not once? No. I made it. I got one phone interview for a job at Stony Brook University, and that was it. Hmm. Um, okay. Well, so my, I guess my one question for you is so right now you work for a, like a cabinet maker right? I do okay so is there one like physical object that you really want to build or that you dream of building and if so what is it Ooh, that's and a good, if that's not a good question and if not uh what's the last thing you built if you don't have an answer to the first part of the question um I really I don't know I so the last thing I built was um, we have um, a couple of jobs that have that have mudrooms I'm not entirely sure what a mudroom actually I think it's like mm-hmm. a either like a like a foyer sort of entryway thing but mm-hmm. the mudroom cabinets would be like two two small base cabinets that have drawers in it. You can put a bunch of shit in. It'd be like a top, and then it'll be like an upper mudroom that you can like hang. That have like little like pegboards, or you can hang, hang coats or okay, yeah. you know whatever. Um, so it's just like it's storage. Um, so the last thing I built was a handful of those. Um, I actually put the back onto one of the uppers on Friday. Um, but if I I think I would probably want to build myself like a writing hut. Oh, that'd be cool. Somewhere. Hmm. Because um, there is this when so in in my internal landscape there is sometimes sometimes it's night and there is a stump with like a fire pit in front of it, hmm. um, or like a log that's tipped over. Um, and other times it's like day or afternoon or evening and there is a small room that's just out there on the landscape. And it contains a uh, a bed, a desk, a lamp, and a window that is usually a little bit open with like white thin white blinds that are usually hmm. like billowing in the breeze. Hmm. And if I could, I think I would want to build that room, hmm. and just to to know that that like some internal space in me actually exists in the in a physical <laughs> in the physical world or like the tangible world. Hmm. Um, that's interesting. Because that's, that's like a... that's that's the first thing that came to mind when you when you asked me that question. Because <laughs> there's really like, I don't know, I I enjoy I enjoy the job for what it is, but I'm not like I'm not passionate about cabinets. Mm-hmm. Um, and like woodworking in and of itself is fun, but I'm also not really passionate about that. But mm-hmm. if given if given the materials and the time and the option to, I think I would want to build that room. Cool. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a, that's a very like, uh, it's a little bit like capital R romantic sounding. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of, that's cool. Hmm. Yeah. Or like a, um, like a really, like a, so it's, it's one of my fantasies is that to live in a studio apartment that has all the, um, 
I don't know. There's a term for this type of furniture, but I don't remember <laughs> what it is. But it's like the the really minimalist, like time saving furniture that everything is like three other things. Oh, modular? Would that be? Kind of not really. Yes, but yeah, but it'd be like, you know, you have a bed that can fold up into like a desk that then mm-hmm. folds out into a couch that then folds <laughs> into something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to, I would like to build the furniture for that type of stuff. I think mm-hmm. that would, that would be a whole lot of fun. That'd be fun to make. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think first and foremost, it would be the room that is occasionally, that occasionally exists inside of me. Not all the time, <laughs> which feels like. Since we were talking about Murakami, it feels like a very Murakami thing that there's like a room that occasionally exists out in this space. Mm-hmm. That is, it's sometimes there and sometimes it's not. Like the room of requirement in Harry Potter. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that that's probably just gonna just about gonna do it. Um, okay. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Um, actually, you might you might find this interesting. I was looking at the. Um, so in SoundCloud, you can look at like stats if you have, I think, like a premium or mm-hmm. like pro or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was looking at where people, uh, sometimes it'll track like where listeners are from. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, within the last week or so, there's been listeners from Sweden, Brazil, and I believe the UK. Whoa. Um, so I am, and I think Fr- there's one from France that I saw too. Whoa. So I'm, so... Thank you, all my international listeners. Um, it's crazy that my podcast is legitimately international. Um, thank you so much. Um, I will do my best to make uh, like updates a little more regular and to just let people know what's happening. I might make a Facebook group. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, so thank you. Um, this, will, this will be episode 17. I have two guests lined up for um, September a dear friend of mine, um, Ruth Diaz, and then Julie Levron. Oh, cool! Is going to be my last guest of uh, season two. Mm. Um, and so, as is tradition, maybe season three will have a have a legitimate sign off. But I've been able, unable to come up with one that that works. So I usually <laughs> leave it up to my guests if they if they have a sign off that they want to they want to utilize. Oh. Um, uh. <laughs> After this podcast ends, if there's anybody around you, take a second, just look at them, and recognize that you're both there together in the same space. You're both human beings with a breath and a pulse, and that is amazing. And that's all I have to say. Nice. <laughs> all right. Uh, thank you all for listening. Take that time to look at the other person and or yourself if there's no one around yeah, you and yeah, yeah, recognize yeah. that you are a living thing. You're alive and sentient and that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and I will talk to you all later. <laughs>